This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good morning and welcome to episode number 115 of Go To Grandma. I'm your go-to grandma, Kathy Buckworth, and this show is airing on October 21st, 2023. If you've listened to the show or follow me on Instagram, you will know that I am a bookworm, or an ink drinker, as they say in France, or in German, a read rat. I consistently have about six books checked out of two different libraries, plus volumes that I am sent for the show, which I happily read as well. I love to have authors on my show, which I think you know. I also love to attend author events, and I did so last month in the small town of Meaford, Ontario, which is conveniently located about 10 minutes from my cottage. Hosted by the Friends of the Meaford Library, pal Jennifer Robson regaled the audience with her stories on the research and writing of Coronation Year, her latest book. Jennifer is also the author of The Gown and many others. I interviewed Jennifer on Go to Grandma on episode 97, so I encourage you to go to the podcast list and give it a listen. Within the same week, I also saw Terry Fallis author of a slew of politically satiric bestsellers, who has just released a novel, which is quite a departure for him. How so? I'm interviewing Terry today after attending his sold-out author event, which included him singing and having the audience laughing along with his signs of aging. His new book is called A New Season, and it landed on the Globe and Mail bestseller list immediately. Set partly in Toronto, partly in Paris, it's a touching but still humorous book you'll want to hear about. Then we have the author of no less than 21 parenting books, my pal Ann Douglas, who is going to be talking about an article she wrote for Psychology Today about the challenges and changes that happen when you become an empty nester. Who loves it? Who hates it? Why we have the feelings we do and what to do about them. And I'm apologizing in advance for using the term feeling all the feels during the interview. Who am I? Oh, right. As of September, an empty nester myself. Two great Canadian authors who are making sure they leave behind a legacy of great writing. We all want to leave a legacy, and today on our Take 5 with RBC interview, we get into the details of how to make sure our grandkids are taken care of when we are no longer around to do so. So with all of this to get to, let's get to it. Terry Fallis is up first. I'm Kathy Buckworth, and you're listening to Go To Grandma. A two-time winner of the Stephen Leacock Medal for Humor, Terry Fallis is the award-winning author of nine national bestsellers, including six number one bestsellers. His debut novel, The Best Laid Plants, also won the 2011 edition of CBC Canada Reads. His newest novel is A New Season. Good morning, Terry Fallis. Thanks for being on Go-To Grandma today. Good morning, Kathy. Thanks for having me. So I mentioned in my intro that I had seen you speak about the book in Meaford and really enjoyed your chat and your singing. And now I've had the opportunity to read the book as well. And I'm a loyal reader of yours, so I know that this novel is a bit of a departure for you. But for people who aren't familiar, explain how it is a departure for you. Well, Kathy, I think it's a departure because uh, if I'm known for anything, it's probably for writing funny novels. And I hope there's some humor in this novel, but I think it has a little bit more emotional depth in the story uh, to offset the humor, perhaps a bit more profoundly than in my other uh, in my other novels. Uh, but you know, it opens with uh, the narrator who has lost his wife of two and a half. Two and a half years before the story opens, and they've been married for 30-some-odd years, and it's a shock. 
and he is not yet recovered. And, well, how can you recover right. when your spouse uh, dies unexpectedly? Uh, but he, he's probably not where he might be on, on the grieving journey. Uh, and uh, that's what sort of kicks off the story. So it's not exactly built for a lot of laughs. But, right. but I, ho- I hope that uh, the upwards trajectory of the story and, and the humor that is laced in it, I hope organically uh, and smoothly uh, will still be of interest to readers. And for the record, your real-life wife is still alive. <laughs> did, yeah. she, did she find yeah. the humor in there, Terry? I have to ask. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think she did. Good. But, uh, I, I warned her. Uh, I, I, in fact, I asked her if she, if she was okay. But, I mean, I, even though I write about worlds that I know and that I, that I sort of understand and have experience in, uh, I don't consider them autobiographical. So certainly right. my wife is not... Uh, is not uh, is alive and well and uh, and doing well. So uh, yeah, this is just a story I wrote, wanting to explore something that uh, I probably f- feared to confront. Right. Uh, so it was a, an exercise for me as well. And while you talk about the fact that they're not, you know, about your real life or biographical, they they kind of are a little bit Terry in this book when you get into the hockey that you play. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah, Withrow it, Park Hockey true. League, which is a real one. And I know this to be true because one of my best friend's husbands plays with you. And I'm not even going to tell you who that is. But anyway, oh. and one of the other famous people on that team, and he's the only real character in this book, is Jim Cuddy. So tell me how all of that, how did he end up in your book and what was his reaction? Well, Jim and I have played in the Ball Hockey League for many years. He hasn't played the last few years because of his touring schedule, but uh, but he was on my team on, on more than one occasion, more than one season. And uh, he kindly gave me a positive blurb to put on the front cover of my uh, second novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when I, when I wrote this manuscript, I, I emailed him and said, Jim, I've written this story. You're the only real character in it, but I can very easily do a search and replace in Microsoft Word and and wipe your right. identity clean and and make it somebody who's completely fictitious. But I think I've I've tried to capture who you are, Jim. And what do you think? I, I, I so I attached the manuscript and highlighted where he appeared in the story, and he emailed me back and said, Terry, I don't even have to read the manuscript. I'm quite comfortable with you uh, doing that. And uh, it was very kind of him uh, to do that. It really reflects, again, part of his his character, his generosity and kindness and and trust. And uh, it was very good of him. So uh, I'm not even sure if he's read it yet. I hope he has, and I hope he's still okay with it. And you're right. And Jim Cuddy, of course, from Blue Rodeo, you present him in a way that it's associated with the music that's in the novel itself. And you write about songwriting in the novel. Your main character, Jack McMaster, and I want to get into his name, really writes music with his son. Um, And you wrote, in fact, two original songs. I heard you sing one in Meaford. Why did you choose to include the lyrics for the songs in this book? Well, I, I'd never written about songwriting before, and, and knowing my process of plumbing the depths of my own experiences and, and trying to write about them with conviction and, and authenticity, uh, it was perhaps strange that in my previous eight novels, I had never written about writing right. music, even though I'd been writing music since I was 17 years old. But I'm a very sort of closeted singer-songwriter. Uh, I Performance is not really part of what I do in, in music. I did play in a band in university, which was a lot of fun. But uh, 
But, you know, I, I think Kathy gets that. I, I know that I'm just good enough to know that I'm not good enough. <laughs> I heard you you played a recording for us, and I thought you were very good. So it was <laughs> it, it was really nice. And again, I wanted to back up on the name Jack McMaster. I'm very intrigued where that came from. Can you tell us a bit of how that name came together? Always intriguing when authors make up names, you know? Yeah, and I, I have fun with names in my novels, although... The reason, you know, the story behind the names in my sto- in my novels are not always clear, <laughs> right, to, to the reader, but they are to me, so they're meaningful to me. Uh, but I, I went to McMaster for six years, McMaster University, and uh, I'm quite sure that it shaped my life and and uh, changed my life uh, for various reasons. And I got heavily involved with student politics and became president of the students' union in my last year there. Uh, and uh, the the university administrator I dealt with most often was a guy named Jack Evans. He was the senior vice president, university services, a wonderful man, and uh, he understood students and our positions on the issues. And uh, I was friends with him for 40 years, and we stayed friends. We saw each other at least once a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he passed away in 2022, and I, I spoke at his funeral. And so in a way, using the name Jack uh, and McMaster together uh, reflect my you know, my love for him and my mourning of his passing and my you know respect and recognition of my important years at McMaster. Well, I've had I have two kids that have gone through McMaster. One's in his fourth year, actually, so I appreciate that as well. Um, and part of the book, of course, takes place in Toronto, and it's really interesting as a Torontoian to read all those references. But a lot of it takes place in Paris, and in fact, the main character is quite an interested nineteen twenties Paris. Is that a particular interest of yours as well? Uh, it is, Kathy. I, I have a, ma- a framed map of. Paris in 1928 on my wall right next to me mm-hmm. where I write. I have lots of books about the era and I've just been fascinated with it for probably 20 years now. It was a particularly uh, a revolutionary time in the cultural history of the world and the epicenter of it uh, was Paris. So, mm-hmm. you know, Hemingway and Fitzgerald and Morley Callahan and Gertrude Stein. and uh, So I, I wanted to write about that. And, you know, when you write, you spend two years writing a novel, you want to be writing a novel about something that you're interested mm-hmm. in as well as something you hope your readers are interested in. So uh, it was great to throw myself into that world uh, and to be able to put some of it on the page. Well, I love throwing myself into your world again with this book. It's called A New Season. It's by Terry Fallis. I just picked up the Globe and Mail last weekend. Of course, there you still are on the best-selling list, so congratulations. Clearly, people like the new direction that you've taken, <laughs> and I encourage everyone to pick it up. Thanks so much for being on today, Terry. Thank you, Kathy. It's been fun. Douglas is the author of 26 nonfiction books, including many best-selling titles in the parenting category, and a passionate and inspiring speaker who delivers keynote addresses and leads small group workshops at conferences and online events. Her latest book, which was published by Douglas and McIntyre late last year, is Navigating the Messy Middle, a fiercely honest and wildly encouraging guide for midlife women. Good morning, Anne Douglas. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Oh, I'm always happy to have an excuse to talk to you, Kathy. Oh, that's so nice. And the last time you were on, we talked about your new book, which is awesome. But today we're going to talk about an article that you wrote for Psychology Today about finding your way in an empty or emptier nest. And I'm going to read the first paragraph just to set us up here. 
It's the little things that tend to get to you. The sight of a too empty refrigerator, the fact that you're no longer tripping over a small mountain of running shoes each time you attempt to enter or exit the front door, and the silence that greets you if you happen to be brave enough to step foot in your child's now empty room. Oh, Anne, it sounds so sad. <laughs> I tell you, there's definitely that vibe about it, right? Like it can be a big emotional journey for a lot of people because, you know, it's like it's a turning point in your life. It's like you're opening a new chapter in your life as a parent. It is. And it's new for me. I have to admit, still sometimes when I'm out during the day downtown, whatever, I think, do I have to get home? I don't have to get home. That's weird. So it kind of comes on you in little pieces, you know? It does. And I, I remember like the first time, or I guess the time when I officially became an empty nester, when my youngest left home, I didn't get a lot of notice that this was happening. He'd been commuting to community college, like, for about, you know, a two-hour drive, and he decided when the bad weather hit in November, made the very sensible decision that he wasn't going to do a two-hour commute each way anymore. Right. And I said, okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. He's going to move in with a friend. When are you moving in with the friend? He said, I'm actually moving out today. (laughs) It's like, what? (laughs) Classic. (laughs) I love it. I have a son like that, too. Yeah, I think I was like, you know, reeling for a weekend and I I just spent like a a lot of time crying. I couldn't even like talk about it without breaking into sobs. But then after that, it was it was okay. Yeah. And the transition can be a rough one, as you've just described. But so what would you say to parents who are feeling that really strong sense of loss when it happens? I think you have to really feel whatever it is you're feeling. You can't sort of try and talk yourself out of those emotions. Like, you know, until you've gone through all the Kleenexes in that Kleenex box, maybe you're not done sort of processing it. But I just want people to know that it does get easier. And instead of seeing everything that you've lost, you begin to sort of think, well, what new opportunities does this open? Like you said, you don't have to look at your watch every, Mm -hmm. you know, countless times a day and think, I have to magically pivot to this other activity because somebody's counting on me. Absolutely. And the other side of that coin, of course, is that I have friends like this who say, what a relief that I now have an empty nest, you know, dancing in the house, literally, and they're not feeling sad. And then maybe they feel guilty because they're not feeling sad. These are complicated emotions. And is there a right or wrong way to feel? Oh, there is absolutely no right or wrong way to feel. You can feel all the feelings at once. You can change emotions from day to hour even because you're right. I mean, there can be that sense of relief. A lot of parents have talked to me over the years about how the final months before somebody launches from the nest can often be a really stressful time because the kids are feeling a bit anxious, you're feeling a bit anxious, and maybe you're like annoying the heck out of one another. And so by the time somebody actually exits the nest, you're like, okay, now maybe we can get back on just sort of more emotionally neutral ground where we're not annoying each other over this all the time, like perpetually. I think that's really true. And I always say no one can annoy you like your own mother, myself included. But it's true with the, with the kids as well. And sometimes when they come home, they revert to some of those behaviors as well, as well. And you think, ah, this is why maybe it's a good thing that kids move out at a certain age. Yes. And it's funny to see yourself, like even when I visit my dad, sometimes I'm I'm tempted to just like throw my jacket on a doorknob, (laughs) whereas I would never do that in my own house. I don't know. There's something strange about returning to the place you used to live. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? So what would you say to the parents who are feeling like, okay, the kids have moved out. I'm dealing with that. I'm fine with that. But maybe I'm sort of feeling a little bit useless. Am I obsolete? Am I actually obsolete, Anne? You are absolutely not, Kathy. I mean, your kids are so lucky. What a what a brilliant resource to have built into their lives, like, forever. So I think just 
remind yourself that you're sort of like you're going from being like a hands-on coach or chauffeur or whatever your role has been traditionally into more of like a a cheerleader, a champion, somebody that they can call when they're having a bad day and maybe just like vent about how rotten the world can be because it really can be rotten some days. Or, you know, that they don't necessarily want advice. They just want to hear your your sensible voice, like the voice of reassurance and caring. So I think it's just more of a a transition in your relationship. And I mean, there are times you're going to get it wrong. Like, I, I, I don't know about you, but sometimes a particular kid will push a particular button and I go back into treating them like they're five years of age and I have to say, wait a minute, they're now over six feet tall, so I don't (laughs) think they need the five-year-old treatment anymore. It's so true. I know I was dealing with one of my kids and I thought, I'm just here to listen now. I think we immediately go into solve mode, but if they're not asking us to solve anything, it can be super annoying for them. Yes, I'm sure that, that, I mean, I know because I can picture the body language of my kids with their eyes rolling, you know. Absolutely. And what's helping me actually is I have a few friends that are going through it. I think that's valuable too, right? Talking to the other parents who are also, have been through it or are going through it at the same time. Oh, if I hadn't had other parents to tell me that I'd eventually stop crying, I think it would have been so hard. I mean, I had to have the people who said, you know what, you're going to be sad for a while, but then... You know, in October, you're going to sign up for a night class or something because you're going to realize that you don't have to worry about the rest of the family schedule. It's going to be not in that icky me time kind of way, but it just it opens up a whole bunch of different doors. And and I actually love being a parent at a distance because, you know, I don't have to deal with like the day to day logistics, but I get these amazing text messages from my kids and I get to go visit them and like they made dinner for me. I mean, there can be some pretty magical benefits to this stage of life. Oh, absolutely. And I kind of love it when my kids move somewhere else so I can go visit them in this new location as well. I want them to come back, but it's cool when they move somewhere where you can go and visit somewhere new. And you touched on this a little bit. You said something about taking a night class, and that's one of the things that you recommend in this article is setting a new goal for yourself. Yes, just feeling like that you have something exciting to look forward to and to talk to your kids about. I mean, wouldn't it be depressing if you're like a college-age student and you phone home and, and how are you doing, parents? And it's like, oh, well, we just wander the halls lamenting you're the loss of you and we have nothing <laughs> going on in our life. Like, that would be a big burden for them. They'd think like, yikes. So being able to say, well, I'm really excited because I'm doing this new thing or I've joined this group, it shows them, you're modeling for them a healthy transition because you know what? They're making a lot of hard transitions too. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought about it that way. If you talk about you're just waiting around to mom them again, that's not really a good thing to put on their shoulders. No. No. So this is a great article. We can find it in Psychology Today. You offer up all kinds of tips. And one thing that I missed was, don't forget dads are going through it as well. Not just you and me, right, Anne? But dads are feeling the same feels a lot of the time. Absolutely. One of the people in our extended family who had the hardest time was a dad. And he literally, he started grieving a year before his eldest daughter left the nest. And so I think that with their youngest, they were happy to get some, like, bonus time together during the first year of the pandemic because he had already, you know, mentally packed her eggs and she didn't end up leaving at that point. Yeah, it's very tough. Find the article at Psychology Today or find Ann Douglas, of course, at AnnDouglas.net for parenting stuff. And don't forget to pick up her latest book, Navigating the Messy Middle, a fiercely honest and wildly encouraging guide for midlife women. Thanks so much for being here again today, Ann. Thank you, Kathy.
Leanne Kaufman is the president and CEO of the Royal Trust Corporation of Canada and the Royal Trust Company. She is responsible for the strategy and overall management of RBC Royal Trust, which provides wealth protection and transfer solutions across generations to high net wealth Canadian families. A lawyer by profession, Leanne is the author of the fourth edition of the Executor's Handbook, a contributor to various publications on the topic of estates and trusts, and the host of RBC Wealth Management's Matters Beyond Wealth podcast. Good morning, Leanne. Thanks so much for coming back on GoToGrandma this morning for our RBC Take 5 interview. Uh, It's great to be back, Kathy. Thanks. So today we're talking about when we're planning our retirement, many of us tend to focus on the fun part, like hobbies and travel, spending time with our family, especially the grandkids. And we may not give enough thought and planning to the cost of care in our later years. Can you give us an idea of what those costs could be? Yeah, well, no, this isn't the fun stuff, is it? But no. <laughs> I, I would say the top, the top three costs of care that we need to be thinking about in really broad terms are really like our accommodation and, and the care that will be provided to us. So the cost of having someone come into the home, if it isn't all publicly funded, so what, what are those actual caregiver costs? Uh, the cost to renovate our home so that we can age at home or sometimes called age in place. And if that's not possible, then the cost of what a private, um, you know, residence uh, retirement type community might be. And then, of course, there's unforeseen costs to our network, like, you know, our unpaid friends and family caregivers. But, you know, that's to our network and not to us directly. So it's a lot of future expenses to consider. And it's also during this time when many grandparents really want to help their grandchildren financially. So what are some of the things we should consider when making this decision? I think the number one consideration is what's it going to do to your own financial future and security. So if you wanted to give a gift of thousands or even possibly tens of thousands, depending on your means, to your grandchildren, what is that going to mean for for your ability to fund your own needs? So, you know, there are some ways that we look at doing this, like you could do something like start an RESP for a grandchild, or maybe you want to set aside some money in trust if it's really going to be a substantial amount. Of course, the easiest and most straightforward is just an outright gift. Um, And then, you know, you get to enjoy seeing the benefits of that gift Uh, during your lifetime. But again, it needs to make sense for your own financial planning. And so, you know, I think there's also the opportunity to look at doing it in your estate uh, through your will instead. So you can leave a gift or, um, or a trust set out in a in a will. Um, you can use beneficiary designations on your registered plans, your TFSAs, your uh, RESP, or RRSPs and, and RIFs, um, or an insurance policy. So there's lots of, lots of different ways that the gifts can be given. It's just really a question of whether you want to do it now or defer it to a later time. Right. So if you were to leave our listeners with one piece of advice on this topic, what would that be? I think it's always really important to get financial advice from a professional who can help you plot out what those future costs will be, go over your goals for your retirement, and and really see whether it's something that you can facilitate now or something that should wait for your will or your estate plan. You know, giving the money in the future might look a lot different to you than, than it is in today's terms. 
And and I think, Kathy, you, you and I have talked about this topic, so I think you would agree when I say if you're going to give something to your grandkids, talk to your kids first. Conversations will go a long way in avoiding any conflict around this. That is a great tip. That is a great tip to close with. You're absolutely right, because we always talk about this, don't we, that protecting that relationship comes first always. Thank you so much for this, uh, Leanne. Really appreciate your advice. And, of course, if we want more information, we can go to rbc.com slash royal trust. Always a pleasure, Kathy. You will lose someone you can't live without and your heart will be badly broken. And the bad news is that you never completely get over the loss of your beloved. But this is also the good news. They live forever in your broken heart that doesn't seal back up. And you come through. It's like having a broken leg that never heals perfectly, that still hurts when the weather gets cold, but you learn to dance with the limp. Anne Lamott. I love that quote, and I love that I have a job where I get to invite authors to speak with me, and they say yes. Thanks, Anne and Terry, for sharing your stories and your thoughts with us today. I love seeing both of your names on the bestseller list. Next week on Go-To Grandma, boy, oh boy, do I have a treat for you. Former broadcasters and current podcasters Aaron Davis and Lisa Brandt are back-to-back on the show. They'll tell me about their hugely successful podcast, Gracefully and Frankly, as we find out which one is which. Grandma Banana Erin tells me about something she did which she never thought she would do and how much she loves it. And Lisa gets into her latest book called Trade Up as we discuss how the trades could be a perfect career choice for our grandchildren. If you've heard of AI or artificial intelligence, you may be feeling a bit uncomfortable about where it's going. On our Take 5 with RBC interview, we're going to discuss how it can help you manage your personal finances. Now that's something I can get comfortable with. Thanks again for tuning in this morning on Zoomer Radio or on the podcast if that's where you found us. Please come back again and again. I'm Kathy Buckworth, and you've been listening to Go To Grandma. Enjoy your grand journey. Share your thoughts on this show with us. You can find Kathy on Instagram at Kathy Buckworth or email her, Kathy at KathyBuckworth.com. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.